Despite our universal abhorrence, evils continue to plague the world without respite. We fear and hate war, yet war continues. Our souls revolt against unjust imprisonment and torture, yet such injustices continue. We feel powerless in the face of endless tax increases, and with good reason. We feel agonizing compassion for those who are caught up in the endless bloody nets of tribal conflicts, condemned to mute horror and blank-eyed starvation. The plight of the enslaved weighs down our hearts with the rusty chains of useless sympathy. We would do almost anything to free the world from such monstrous evils, yet we feel so helpless. We all want a free and wonderful world and yet feel utterly paralyzed before these monsters who commit such universal crimes. Violence, injustice, and brutal control are truly the malignant cancers of our species. Philosophers have chided and reasoned in vain for thousands of years. Governments have been instituted to serve and protect the people, yet always escape the flimsy walls of their paper prisons and spread their choking powers across society, darkening hope in the future. In this book, I do my part to put an end to these evils. I know exactly how all these horrors can be ended. I am fully aware of the outlandishness of this claim. I am fully aware that you have every right to be perfectly skeptical and cynical about the contents of this book. I would not blame you at all if you laughed in my face, spat at my feet, did anything that you pleased as long as I could get you to turn just one more page. Because what if it were possible? What if it were possible to live in a world free of the terror and genocide of war? What if it were possible to live in a world without unjust imprisonment, institutionalized rape, and the endless subjugation of the helpless and arming of the vicious and evil? What if you held in your hands a small blueprint that could lead to just such a world? A world of peace and plenty of compassion, volunteerism, virtue, and true liberty. Isn't that what we all really dream of? Isn't that the world that we wish with all our hearts that our children could inherit? Isn't that the world that we would like to take even a few steps towards? We can get there. Why do we examine the destination before mapping the journey? Nietzsche said, he who has a why can bear almost any how. Before we discuss how to get to freedom, why must know why a stateless society is so essential? This book will show you what real freedom looks like. The inevitable and highly intelligent questions that arose in response to my last book, Everyday Anarchy, mostly centered in the question of how a stateless society could self organized in practical terms. Naturally, these sorts of questions are a fascinating and endless kind of intellectual delight. Much as Alice mused as she fell down the hole at the beginning of Lewis Carroll's famous book, we intellectuals are tempted to design the future down to the last detail. We try to respond to every conceivable objection with yet another essay on how roads can be delivered in the absence of government or how the international treaties can work in the absence of law courts, or how children can be protected in the absence of the police, or how national defense can be secured in the absence of a state army, and how the poor can be received and education in the absence of public schools, 
and how and why doctors will help the impoverished sick without being forced to, and so on. I have always argued that these answers, though intellectual, intellectually stimulating and enjoyably debatable, will never convince those who wish to avoid the morality and practicality of non-violent solutions to the problems of social organization. For instance, in my last book, as well as a recent video, I provided a proof for anarchy which relied on the reality of non-contractual special interest groups' relationships with an up-and-coming politicians. A large number of people wrote to me in response saying either that such special interests or relationships did not exist, surely a laughable proposition given the 30,000 plus lobbyists registered in Washington, D.C. alone, or that if I wanted anarchy and demo democracy was a great proof of the practical functionality of anarchy, then surely I should be happy with democracy. There seems to be no end to the foolish statements that can be uttered by those afraid of the truth. The truth, as Socrates gave his life to show, remains highly threatening to entrenched interests and have a very personal and volatile effect on our immediate relationships. In reality, it is not so much a stateless society that we fear, but rather a familyless and friendless society where we rock gently, hugging our useless truths to our chests, solitary, ostracized, alone, rejected, scorned, and derided. The truth is a desert island we fear, and so as evolutionarily social animals, we join our corrupt circles in mocking and attacking the truth, and resent those who tell the truth or revealing the corruption that formerly was only visible unconsciously, which is to say largely invisible. It is important to understand up front that this book will contain truths that will likely be highly threatening to you and certainly to those around you. The world viewed philosophically remains a series of slave camps where citizens tax livestock, labor under the chains of illusion in the service of their masters. As I talked about in my book, Real-Time Relationships, the predations of the rulers survived in the horizontal attacks of the slaves because we savage each other while we remain ruled by savages. <clears throat> Thus, you may find that as you read this book, you experience a rising frustration and irritation with its contents, and possibly with me as well, if, you experience as any, if experience is any guide. I certainly do sympathize with those emotions and truly understand their cause, but I would strongly urge you to refrain from sending me angry emails for your sake, not mine. It is as you know, highly unjust to attack a truth-teller for the discomfort he causes. It is not my fault that you have been lied to your whole life long. Furthermore, that lies exist whether or not you hear the truth from me or from anyone else. It is impossible for any single man or group of men to ever design or predict all the details of any society. In order for you to get the most out of this book, I will make a few suggestions which may be helpful. First of all, if you approach this book with the idea that you're going to find every possible gap in an argument or nook and cranny where uncertainty may reside, then this book will be a complete waste of time and will raise your blood pressure for absolutely no purpose whatsoever. When Adam Smith formulated the arguments of the free market in the late 18th century, it was not, it was not considered a requirement that he predict the stock price of IBM in 1961. He began working with a number of observable and empirical principles and proved them with rational arguments and well-known examples. The validity of the invisible hand 
was not dependent upon Adam Smith predicting and describing in detail the invention of, say, the Internet. The methods that free men and women invent and use to solve social problems cannot reasonably be predicted in advance, and finding every conceivable fault with any and all such possible predictions is arguing against a mere theoretical possibility, which is both futile and ridiculous. That having been said, it is still worth reviewing some possible solutions to social organization that do not involve the monopolistic violence of the state. When Enlightenment thinkers attacked and undermined the explo exploitive illusions of religion, they were not able to provide a valid and scientific system of ethics to replace the mad moral commandments of historical superstition. It certainly is valuable to disprove existing truths, but if we do not come up with at least plausible alternatives, these falsehoods inevitably turn to morph and re-emerge in a different form. Thus did the t death of religion give rise to totalitarianism, just another worship of an abstract and irrational moral absolute, the state, rather than a god. The unjust aristocratic privileges of the minority that the founding fathers so railed against simply morphed into the unjust privileges of the majority in the form of mob rule, democracy, which then morphed back into the unjust aristocratic privileges of the minority in the form of a political ruling class. Men and societies will need rules to live by, and if existing rules get knocked down, they simply rise again and other form of rational replacements are not provided. Exposing a lie simply breeds different lies, unless the truth is also advanced. I have set myself a number of goals in the writing of this book that I wanted to mention up front so you could understand the approach that I am taking, the strengths and weaknesses of what I am up to as it were. First, I promise to refrain from exhausting your patience by trying to come up with every conceivable solution to every conceivable problem. Not only would this end up being gr grindingly boring, but it would also indicate a strange kind of intellectual insecurity and an unwillingness to give you the respect of accepting that you can, be, you can very easily think for yourself about the solutions to the problems discussed in this book. My aim is to give you a framework for thinking about these issues rather than have you sit passively as I explicate the widest variety of solutions to all conceivable problems. In other words, my purpose in this book is to teach you to be a mathematician, not show you how good a mathematician I am. Teaching you how to solve problems is far more respectful than giving you solutions I have always said that everyone is a genius and everyone is a philosopher. You do not need me to spell out how a stateless society can work in every detail, but rather give you a framework which you can use to work out your own answers and satisfy yourself how well a truly free society will work.